So are you ready for a dark interlude? I'm sure that you are, because we're going to revisit the central thesis of the presentation, which is that what we call adult evil is generally the effect of imaginary child evil. Very real adult evils arise out of imaginary child evils. We think our children are bad, so we abuse them, we control them, we reject them, we shape them, we harm them to make them better, and that's the cycle of violence. So why was there such a murder fest in the French Revolution? Did people just go mad? Was it just the magical spell of ideology? Was it some bizarre alignment of the planets of socioeconomic forces? No, it was uncorked childhood. It was childhood trauma acting out on a countrywide stage with no restraint. See, when you bully and control someone, you have to continue to bully and control them. Or you have to genuinely apologize and give up your power and make restitution. It wasn't like the upper classes were going to do that to the poor or the parents were going to do that to their children. So why was the French population... And we don't want to paint with too broad a brush, of course, right? I mean, there were lots of decent, honorable people in the situation. But the mob, right... Why is it that the mob brings out such demonic impulses and actions from people? Why is it that individuals are often sane, but in a collective they are deranged and evil? Well, because people can hide in the mob. People can act without consequences. This is the id unleashed without the bullying superego restraining it. Why were they so eager to murder? Well, one of the most common capital crimes for which women were actually executed in the 18th century was infanticide. And if you look through the records, they are genuine murders. It's not stillbirths or deaths from natural causes. Babies were poisoned. They had their throats cut. They were beaten to death. They were drowned in streams and lakes and rivers. They were even thrown down a toilet and left to die in the feces. Now, some of these were bastards, of course, fatherless children or children outside of marriage. Some of them would be inconvenient. When you have starvation, women, like all the females in nature, sometimes have to make grim choices. So it seems quite likely that children would have grown up seeing murder in the environment, the murder of, of children. And how infanticide was handled in late medieval France is actually quite fascinating. It's a, it's a paradox. So on the one hand, yes, murdering your infant is a grave sin and a crime. On the other hand, it was an offense that could just be pardoned. Even the single mother who had murdered her child to conceal her sin could get a pardon. And Christianity made great strides in trying to reduce the outright murder of newborns, but it did allow for, or perhaps this replaced, the, the abandonment of children. Either you sold your children, you sent them out to a wet nurse, you dumped them in a monastery or a nunnery or a foster family, or you would farm them out to other homes as servants. And I actually know of a relative who, at the age of 10, was sent to a major city to be a servant, a maid to a professor. It's wild. So you're going to get rid of the child. Either you murder the child or you farm the child off. And this is going to be a bit of a scattershot across Europe, but it was common, right? And Italy is very common in its Catholicism to France. So 
parents just did not want to raise their own offspring, even if those offspring were legitimate. Throughout the 19th century, over half of the children born in Florence, Italy, were dumped into foundling homes at birth. So at birth, they would dump these kids in daycares from hell, and most of them died. And this is what what Rousseau did with his five children. Most of them died, but around the age of five, these parents would come back and pick up their children. Oh, those children who survived. This same abandonment was incredibly common in France. So obviously this is more than a century past, but in 1900, over 90% of the babies born in Paris were carted out to the countryside at birth to wet nurses. Mother love, female attachment, women are so sentimental, women care so much. Not evolutionarily or historically speaking. This maternal attachment, maternal affection, I think it's a latent possibility, but it's almost as modern as a cell phone. You know, people communicated, but it took until the last couple of decades to get cell phones, and women had maybe some attachment to their kids, but it took until the modern era for it to be anything close to love, devotion, or sacrifice. Now, why would they do this? Well, there's a a cycle, of course, right? And the cycle goes something like this. You, as a baby, cry to signal to your parents that they need to take care of you in some manner. If you're dumped into one of these horrible foundling homes or farmed out to a hostile, indifferent, depressed wet nurse, I mean, what kind of woman becomes a milking cow for other women's children? Well, obviously not a very successful or happy woman. So your own cries are unheeded or attacked or beaten or rejected, and molestation would have been incredibly common in these places, including the monasteries. So then, when you give birth to a child as an adult, right, you grow up like this, you give birth to a child as an adult, the child's cries are hell for you because it reminds you of your own abandonment. So then you abandon your child to stay away. Like, oh, I don't want a a crying child in the house, they would say, well... Of course, nobody wants a crying child in the house. That's why you take care of your children and you deal with whatever's making them cry so they become happier again. But they couldn't handle that. They just farmed them off. There was also a myth. This is not uncommon throughout the world, which sort of focus on Western Europe. There was this myth that children's bodies were great at curing diseases. So if you wanted to be cured of leprosy, the rumor was, the myth was, the practice was that you kill a child and you wash your body in the child's blood. And of course, there were all of the rolling plagues. We know the sort of famous rolling Black Death, but there were many plagues, of course, throughout Europe. And if you wanted to take occupancy of a house in a town where the previous occupants might have died of plague, you'd want to make sure that the house was no longer infected, that the house was safe to go into. So what would you often do? Well, you would rent some children and you would send them to live in the house for a couple of weeks just to see if they lived or died. You know how people use canaries in the coal mine to detect poisonous gases and create infectious police songs? A lot of doctors in Western Europe would promote raping a child if you were depressed, if you had venereal diseases, if you were impotent, as late as the end of the 19th century, men who were brought into the British court, the Old Bailey, for having raped little girls, were let go because, quote, they believed that they were curing themselves of venereal disease. I believe this is also going on in Africa with AIDS at the moment. One medical textbook said, and I quote, breaking a maiden's seal is one of the best antidotes for one's ills. Cudgeling her unceasingly until she swoons away is a might remedy for a man's depression. It cures all impotence. So, 
yeah, raping, raping virgins. Oh, it's horrendous, just horrendous. British doctors in the 19th century regularly found when visiting men who had venereal disease, well, they found that often their children had the same disease on their anuses or genitals or mouths. And there was a myth that childhood or infantile crying was a form of demonic possession. There was a changelings, that was the name of a horror movie, I think, but changelings, they're about to turn into changelings. Those who, as St. Augustine puts it, quote, suffer from a demon. And the book on demonology, the Malleus Maleficarum, says that one can recognize a demonically possessed baby, a changeling, because they, quote, always howl most piteously. And uh, since Luther reported that the changeling demonically possessed children, quote, are more obnoxious than ten children with their crapping, eating, and screaming. Right. So this is, a again, the ultimate vicious circle that culminates in just this kinds of mass murders at a political level. The child is unhappy. It could be colic. It could be digestive issues. It could be separation anxiety. It could be any number of an infinity of discontents. The child cries, and rather than comfort the child, the parents uh, look up their handy-dandy little religious textbooks or talk to their priest, and the priest says, oh, yeah, no, that's totally demonic possession, and you need to beat the demon out of the child. And there was a wide variety of tools available to beat the demons out of babies. Of course, the cat and nine tails, which is a form of whip, regular whips, shovels, iron rods, bundles of sticks, canes, something called the discipline, and that's a whip made out of small chains. There's something called a goad, G-O-A-D, and that's like a cobbler's knife, and it cuts or pricks the child on the head or the hands. At school, you could be introduced to special instruments like the flapper, and that had a pear-shaped end and a round hole with the goal of when you hit the child hard enough, it would raise immediate blisters. And the beatings that are described are always severe to potentially fatal. Bruising and bloodying the body, and they began in infancy, and there is, of course, always this weird, sexually creepy aspect that it is always about the genitals or the anus, the buttocks, and so on, right? And from infancy onwards, you drive the demon out of the baby, you drive the sin out of the child, you drive the rebellion out of the child. Remember, Lucifer's great sin was rebellion. And even you look at humanists and teachers who are the more gentle and enlightenment or pre-enlightenment era, they still said, yeah, absolutely, totally severely beat your children. Otherwise, they will uh, manifest demons, they will become evil, and so on, right? And there was a few movements towards slightly better treatment of children, but in general, it only had to do with preventing their death, right? Because if the child dies, then all of the calorie, energy, and monetary investment, not to mention it's a future worker or breeder for the rulers, for the kings and queens, to prevent the child's death. A 13th century law said, and I quote, if one beats a child until it bleeds, then it will remember. But if one beats it to death, the law applies. An intellectual Bartholomew Batty said parents must, quote, keep the golden mean. In other words, they should not, and I quote, strike and buffet their children about the face and head, and to lace upon them like malt sacks with cudgel, staves, fork, or fire shovel, because the kids could die. 
The correct way, the right way to do it so they don't die, he said, was to, quote, hit him upon the sides with the rod, and he shall not die thereof. So that's the closest you can get to any kind of humanism. By the 13th century, you start to see the first vague signs of a disapproval of pedophilia. You start to get some pamphlets and books about mildly better child-rearing practices, and the child is not considered to be born innately evil, but it's going to head that way unless strictly tamed, right? Left to their own devices, children turn evil just as Adam and Eve left to their own devices to God and must be punished with childbirth for Eve and endless labor for Adam. Church moralists in 14th century began to warn against sexual molestation of children by whoever was in authority, the parents, the neighbors, the nurses, or whatever, right? The length of swaddling time, what we talked about encasing the children in these tight bandages with lice and ticks and fleas, was reduced from a year or more to only a few months. If you were wealthy, you began, like the sort of growing bourgeois, the middle class, they said, maybe, maybe, maybe the mom should use her own breast to breastfeed her child, right? Maybe instead of shipping them off on a rickety cart to be wet nursed in some peasant village, which over half of them would, would die, maybe, just maybe, the mother might nurse the infant herself, right? As wild. And there's the first reports of this sort of mutual back and forth, sort of 14th, 15th centuries. Some mothers began to try nursing their own babies, and they note with wonder that the baby returns the affection. The baby coos and strokes the mother's breast and face, and so on, right? And when the father complains about the lack of attention, you know, pouring all of this attention into the baby, the baby doesn't, doesn't then just get handed off to someone else. A few of these new mothers said, you should, you should hold the baby, you know, eye contact, and so on, right? So this is the, the middle class, the bourgeois, not the royalty. The royalty is still horribly abused. The poor are still hard. But the bourgeois, as I sort of talked about, the bourgeois, the middle class, slightly better. Well, I shouldn't say slightly better. It was slightly in terms of the overall improvement of parenting in the country or continent as a whole. For those children, of course, it was everything. And what happens? Well, because you get these childhood reforms, you start to get massive moral progress in the world. So this is the early modern times, right? So this massively improved child rearing, just, again, almost exclusively in the new bourgeois middle class, the wealthy who've earned their own income. It's incredible change. And these children evolved from what you see in the early medieval times, the Dark Ages, and in, in, in antiquity, schizoid and, and borderline personalities, you know, the really psychotic, they, they hear voices, they hallucinate demons and, and visions, they scratch themselves, they beat themselves, they tear at their own flesh, they get transformed and speak in tongues in ecstasies, like really deranged people. Instead of projecting all their trauma out into the metaphysical universe, into the very fabric of reality, you have this massive improvement in parenting, which leads to moral progress, and thus to depression. I know. <laughs> Sounds a little odd. Just bear with me. Just bear with me. You go from psychosis, borderline, schizophrenic, to depressed, 
to feel real sadness for the first time, to not be so traumatized that all of your emotions are the movements of gods and devils and angels and hellscapes and visions from outside of reality, you actually start to feel sad for the first time. We're talking sort of 16th century. And what do we see in this? And I don't want to go on a big tangent, though you always can with Hamlet, but you start to see the emergence of Renaissance sadness, Renaissance melancholy. And Protestants worked to end Mary and Eve, the good mother, bad mother splitting. And Protestants sort of famously, <laughs> it's a sort of depressive guilt and so on. It's just wild. You can actually begin to look at reality for the first time, not as a giant stage where matter reflects your own deranged and psychotic imagination, well, which you perceive as real. It's one of the bases of psychosis if you think it's real. Your emotions have come to the point where you can be begin to actually examine the world as it is. You're not trapped in an insane brain of a crazed set of deities. You can actually begin to examine the world as it is. And this is the beginning of science. And of course, if you look at Hamlet, you see the medieval personality versus the Renaissance personality. The medieval personality is deranged, psychotic, guilt-ridden, violent, and no capacity for self-reflection, only manipulation. But Hamlet has been raised better, or Hamlet is emblematic of people who are raised better. He has introspection, he has doubt, he has moodiness, he is anxious, he is paralyzed, he is depressed. That's massive progress. Depression is better than psychosis. So that is progress. And you start to get the idea of democratization and equality and property rights and free trade and so on, right? It's really amazing. But it's incredibly uneven. Imagine you are a servant girl in a wealthy household, a bourgeois household, a middle-class, upper-middle-class household, a trader, a merchant, a landowner, not a noble landowner, but an earned landowner. And you see, you see the mother cuddling with the babies, kissing the babies, breastfeeding the babies, playing with the babies. What does that arouse in your heart, in your gut? What does it arouse when you, who was traumatized, brutalized, farmed out to a wet nurse, beaten within an inch of her life, raped, and you see a mother behaving tenderly with her children. Remember, the classes weren't separated in the way that they are now. They weren't separated in the way. And now, you know, the middle class, they move out to the suburbs, they're in their gated communities, they drive their Priuses to their air-conditioned towers, they only go to the theater district. They have almost no contact if they don't want to, and most of them don't. They have almost no contact with other classes. The super rich are in their own planet, the upper middle class, middle class in their own planets, and the poor are in a whole different universe. But this is not the case. Back then, you rubbed shoulders with everyone, the rich and the poor. There was no such thing as the suburbs. The rich and the poor rubbed elbows. The rich and the poor lived together in the same house because you would need. I mean, you've seen Downton Abbey, right? You, you've seen that kind of thing where you have all the servants' quarters and the poorest are rubbing shoulders with the wealthiest and they see everything. What does it do? What does it do? And what does it do also if you are a servant girl and you see the mother being tender towards her baby and then she beats you or watches you being beaten? What does it do? There's a yearning, of course, and yearning is aspirational if you think you can achieve it. Yearning becomes murderous if you think it's impossible. So 
what happened was sexual abuse and half murderous physical abuse, right? Physical abuse works on children only because the children accept that it can escalate to the point of death, right? That all physical abuse is a death threat, right? So what happened was you began to see parents using verbal abuse, psychological abuse, applying psychological pressure instead of beating their children half to death. So this is where you start to see confinement rather than whipping, right? So the child is born sinful. In order to teach the child, initially you had to whip the child, beat the child half to death, bloody, bruised. But now what happens is the children get shut up in these in their rooms, in dark closets, the closet under the stairs, for hours with no food. And sometimes this would stretch for days if the child did not submit. One mother shut her three-year-old boy up in a small drawer. Another mother had a house she described as, quote, a sort of little Bastille in every closet of which was to be found a culprit. Some were sobbing and repeating verbs, others eating their bread and water. There's a report of a five-year-old boy prior to the French Revolution. He was looking at a new apartment with his mother, and he said, Oh, no, Mama, it's impossible. There's no dark closet. Where could you put me when I'm naughty? Right. So there began to be some replacement of beatings with confinement, with baby prison, child prison. And where did the French Revolution get its start? At the Bastille. Why did they hate the Bastille so much, even though it held almost no prisoners? Why? Did they want to invade and murder the guards of the Bastille because they had been confined rather than beaten? Now, later, it was the people who'd been beaten who ended up doing the attacks. But here, there's a dim, primordial, deep brain memory of confinement. We hate the Bastille. It's a symbol of oppression. Why is the Bastille a symbol of oppression when there's almost nobody in it? Because they had been thrown in baby jails and child jails. So, although you didn't always have to beat the demon out of the child, there was a steady pressure during this time period on the child to discipline it property, properly by, we all know, right, breaking its will. Break the will of the child. And it started pretty early. John Wesley's mother said of her babies, quote, when turned a year old, and some before, they were taught to fear the rod and to cry softly. She said, you wouldn't even know there were any children in the house. They're so quiet. And Rousseau confirmed, right, prior to the revolution in France, babies in their earliest days were often beaten until they were silent and stayed silent. Another mother wrote about her battle with her four-month-old infant, quote, I whipped him till he was actually black and blue and until I could not whip him anymore and he never gave up one single inch. <sighs> And we talked about royalty later on, Louis XVI, little Louis VIII in 1603. His pediatrician reported that little Louis VIII had his penis and breast kissed by everyone in the court, and his parents would involve him in sexual intercourse in the royal bed. And there was some reformation about this, maybe half century before the revolution, they began to say, maybe this is not quite right. And then they shifted to punishing the child for touching his or her own genitals. Of course, they threatened cages, genital restraint devices, circumcision, clitoridectomy, infibulation, and just all of this 
kind of stuff, right? So physical punishments remain for a lot of the population, for the middle classes, they were replaced by psychological punishments. And the effects, of course, of all of this, we would know. We know, of course, it, it was immense. So later on in this time period, adults recalled as children the endless, you know, sleep demon style recurring nightmares, outright hallucinations like my friend who suffered severe child abuse and woke up at night paralyzed with the ghost of a Victorian woman floating over his bed. He genuinely believed it was real. It was true. They had real hallucinations. They claimed they were terrorized by ghosts and demons. One referred to a witch on the pillow. Another referred to a large black dog under the bed or in a particularly eerie description, a crooked finger crawling across the room. And I mean, you can read these reports all throughout history. It's just brutal. Children had dancing manias, loss of hearing. They, they went mute. They lost memories completely. They hallucinated devils. They said uh, confessed to intercourse with devils, convulsive fits, spontaneous blindness. I mean, all of the stuff that Freud was starting to deal with in 19th century Vienna. All comes from child abuse. And because people lacked compassion, of course, for themselves, for children, because they had not been empathized with as children, when children were afraid, what, what do we do now if we're reasonable? Well, we give children comfort because that way they learn to handle their own anxiety, their own fears, and they become more courageous thereby. Nope, that's not the way it was in pre-revolutionary France. Well, how do you get over your fears? Well, you face them. You stare them down, and not in your imagination, in reality. Adults in this time period in France, of course, they would take their children to the hanging stations, to the gibbets, and they would show them the rotting corpses either hanging or lying by the gibbet while telling the moral stories. This is what happens if you don't obey. This is what happens to people who don't listen to their parents. This is what happens to people who listen to Satan. You got eyes hanging out, tongues, blue tongues hanging out, rotting flesh. And this is how they instructed their children. Classes were taken out of school to go and witness hangings. To witness hangings. Parents would sometimes take their children to said hangings, and then when they get home, beat them to make them remember what they've seen. Even some of the humanists, like Mafio Veggio, he said, man, it's terrible to beat children severely. However, quote, to let them witness a public execution is sometimes not at all a bad thing. And taking children out to see people slaughtered to stare at bodies while receiving horrendous verbal abuse, quote, moral lectures. One little girl, her mother showed her the fresh corpse of her nine-year-old friend as an example of a disobedient child, and she went around saying, they will put daughter in the deep hole, and what will mother do? Another child who was taken out to see hangings woke up at night screaming, and then, and I quote, practiced hanging his own cat. And religion had a ways to go in terms of empathy, to put it mildly. Children were told that God was said to, quote, hold you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire. And of course, there were children's books depicting hell, quote, the little child is in this red-hot oven. Hear how it screams to come out. It stamps its little feet on the floor. And the terrorizing figures I mentioned earlier, my friend who was told about Boney, which is Bonaparte, 
Yeah, werewolves are going to come and bite off your head. Bluebeard is going to chop you into pieces. Bony or Bonaparte is going to eat your flesh. The chimney sweep all in black will steal you away at the night. Adults would actually dress up dummies to use in frightening children. This is 1748, and this is in England. It's common throughout Europe. 1748, one English writer explains, and I quote, The nurse takes a fancy to quiet the peevish child, and with this intent dresses up an uncouth figure, makes it come in and roar and scream at the child in ugly, disagreeable notes, which grate upon the tender organs of the ear, and at the same time, by its gesture and near approach, makes as if it would swallow the infant up. And if you've seen these videos of parents scaring their children or children in the sort of Halloween stores who are too young to understand what's going on. I mean, it's brutal. It's deeply traumatic. I still remember being over at a sleepover and the older kids were showing a movie of Dracula. This was a really gory movie of Dracula as well. I remember the state going through his heart. And I mean, it was obviously great because it was an old black and white television, but blood coming up and out of the mouth and so on. And I still remember when I was very young, Jaws was a big phenomenon, I guess. I was maybe 11, 10 or 11. I went to take, went to see it. My mom took me to see the movie Jaws. And I, I very clearly remember the Quint getting eaten and blood coming out of his mouth. And I remember, as I mentioned before, when I was in boarding school at about the age of six, they played an old Charlton Heston movie about him fighting zombies, which was absolutely terrifying, called The Omega Man. I think it was remade with Will Smith. And it was just appalling. Just incredibly. I mean, you've got to keep this stuff away from kids as best you can if they can't handle it, and if they're already stressed by other things, it makes it particularly worse and creates a kind of sense of a malevolent, horrifying universe. So I wanted to touch base on the childhood thing because why? Well, because now we do the reign of terror. The reign of terror. Why is that such an evocative phrase? Why is it called that? Well, because for most of these people, their childhood was a reign of terror. Their religious instruction was a reign of terror. And we see how these kinds of childhoods play out when the violence diminishes even slightly. And remember, as we get into this, the execution of the king, the reign of terror, the arc of Robespierre, the return of the Marquis de Sade, remember the essential lesson of these people's childhoods is that violence begets virtue and only violence begets virtue. This is what it is for them as children. You're beaten to be good. You're restrained to be good. You're thrown in prison to be good. You're thrown under the stairs with spiders and no food and no drink for hours or days because only violence can produce virtue. Well, you give these people control of a state and an army and a quasi-legal apparatus and they're raised with the absolute certainty that only violence can produce virtue. What happens? Well, let's see. All that having been said, let us get to the, the moment of the great overturning the trial and execution of the king. Now, remember, if you dare, how little of people's thoughts about politics are actually involved with politics. And so when we look at what happens to the king, when we look at what happens to Marie Antoinette, we come by dark and circuitous ways to the biblical aspect of the story, the patricide aspect of the story. The decapitation of Christianity and what happens to the king is not about Christianity and it is not about the king. It is about personal ghosts. It is the hatred of the father 
and in turn the hatred of the mother who chooses the father that drives these revolutionaries, the mob. How do we know this? Well, if there's a guy named Eber who wishes to track down the man who killed his wife, and he goes and he tracks down the man and he kills the man who killed his wife, we would assume that he would be satisfied at that point, and his vengeance would cease. If, on the other hand, Eber tracks down the man he says kills his wife, and then goes on to kill that man's wife, his neighbor, his dog, his goldfish, his second cousin, his greengrocer, his third cousin's roommate, then we can say that vengeance was not the purpose. Vengeance was the excuse for all of this. That what is desired is murder. And what is held up is a thinly veiled justification for an elemental bloodlust that has nothing in particular to do with the people being killed. They are symbols for something deeper, darker, more ancient in the personality, more personal in the experience. If we de-Christianize France and we execute the king and we hold up his head, why then our revenge will be complete and we will be free and we can lay down arms. But as we all know, the serial killer who murders women because he's enraged at his mother cannot kill his mother by killing strangers, and therefore the bloodlust is never satisfied. The two major victims of the mob that we know the best, the king and Marie Antoinette, the father and the mother of the country, the father and the mother of the country, are stripped of their titles, stripped of their prestige, of their lands, of their power, of their property, of their home, of their freedom, and, as we all know, not much of a spoiler, I suppose, of their lives. Is it enough? No. When the anger is displaced, it is never satisfied. If the anger is displaced, it is never satisfied. A man abused by his father almost unto death is enraged at his father but fearful of attacking his father so he attacks others. But by doing so he becomes his father and therefore he can never kill his father. The ghost he chases has taken up residence in his own mind and heart where it cannot be dislodged save death itself. And let us not also forget to be or not to be, that is the question. I've often thought about revolutionaries, and I've debated them many times, of course, but I've often thought about revolutionaries, if they're really aware what events they're setting in motion. People who betray the current system to bring in a brutal system are almost always destroyed by that new brutal system, because all it knows, all the darker demons summoned into this new system, all they know is that those who summoned them betrayed the previous system, that they are traitors, and therefore cannot be trusted, and therefore they are killed. This kind of revolution is an elaborate murder-suicide. And when your heart becomes so heavy with blood that you can barely lift it off your table, 
what profit is there in continuing to live when you have become worse than that which you despised when you have been weighed down by the endless souls of those whose intestines you have spilled across the landscape when you have turned your country into hell and yourself into the chief devil what profit is there in continuing to live why would you want to draw breath when sadism is satiated but grows in its hunger every time it feeds imagine you're starving imagine the hungriest you've ever been in your life and you sit down to a glorious feast and the food tastes fantastic but your hunger only grows and it cannot be satisfied for there is no turning back there is no undoing the undoing of a nation there is no amount of slaughter that will satisfy the wounded and abused inner child the inner child seeks comfort the raging parent seeks destruction the psychology of political mass murder is of being provoked into rage to the point where you become an abuser and every abuse you commit further cements the hunger for more violence and parents who teach their children that only violence can produce virtue produce mass criminality and there is in these kinds of historical events there is this manichean bichromatic desire to make the good guys and the bad guys and we'll look at this deeply in some of the conversations that we hear the accounts that we hear of the king of Marie Antoinette the bad revolutionaries the noble king the brave Marie Antoinette succumbed pulled under by the mob like a noble warrior dragged to his depths by wanton bloodthirsty sharks the noble and the base the spiritual and the animal when we draw back from the desire to have good guys and bad guys we have a tough time finding who is innocent who is innocent in the french revolution is it those who parented their own children better but did not return to lift the bladed boot from the necks of the poor and the aristocrats was it those who hoarded their newfound glowing virtues like a miser with his scraps of gold who never returned to help those they had escaped god it's so important to do that thinking you can escape with your good parenting to some noble dimension where the beasts of destruction will never track you will never find you is a delusion thinking you can escape with your good parenting clan from the bad parenting around you is like thinking that you can murder your way to paradise it is as we've always seen a million times right in these horror movies what are we seeing you flee the ghost you lock the door you hide in the corner you turn around the ghost comes through the wall everywhere you run is the ghost everywhere you try to escape is the ghost the ghost is you run from the ghost the ghost gets stronger turn and fight the ghost the ghost gets stronger because the ghost come on we know we know the ghost is sorrow the ghost is sorrow 
sorrow at that which is lost through a brutalized childhood, sorrow at your society who claims to see devils everywhere but in the mirror, who claims that violence and brutality and the verbal abuse of heaven and hell are the only way to achieve virtue from a scabrous, leprous, and demonically possessed and haunted childhood. Don't you feel that? Sometimes there's just unbelievable sorrow at how the world could be if people would just stop beating their children. How the world could be. We could be living in paradise. No crime. Little to no promiscuity. Little to no addiction. All that is required is for parents lower their voices, lower their arms, lay down their arms, stop brutalizing their children. It, it seems so close. It's a mirage, of course. I know it's not close. I know we're generations away. But if people would just go home and hug their children and be nice to them and guard them and protect them and refuse to sacrifice their interests for petty vanity and violent impulses. Sometimes it feels like, honestly, I mean, I'll tell you straight out, man, sometimes it feels like trying to bring peace to childhood is like trying to convince lions to become vegetarians. The only way they seem to listen is to get closer and lick their lips and take your legs. But we must continue to try. And this experiment of what we're doing here, freedomain.com, this experiment, this is a different matter. This is a different matter. Because I don't know of any other conversation in all of history where I circle back, we circle back, philosophy circles back. The thousands of, I've had, of conversations that I've had with people about their childhoods and their sorrow and their suffering, where I charge nothing and deliver, I believe, very powerful and useful wisdom and validation and release. And not just the thousands of conversations I've had with people about their childhoods, but the millions and millions and millions of people who've listened, who've heard that validated and accepted, probably for the first time, to break the standard, to break the programming, to break the train tracks, to jump the tracks, to break the cycle, to not do what we have always done, to abuse children, to hide away with our slightly better families, leave those behind, and not even see them as they creep up with the grass, through the grass, enraged at having been left behind, at the selfishness of thinking that you can just have a good family and leave everyone else behind. Who are the good guys? It's easy, of course, to see those with the axes, those doing the beheadings, those dropping the guillotine. Well, they're just bad guys, and the people they're killing, they're the good guys, unless they advocated for the guillotine, and then they get guillotined themselves. That, of course, often happened, in which case, they're still the bad guys. But in this hellscape, in this dismal Dantean corner, what seems like a never-ending sleep demon nightmare world, we look for the good guys. We look for the good guys. And who are the good guys? Look in the modern world. Who are the good guys? I mean, I think there's a few. Hopefully we are. Who are the good guys? The families I knew when I was growing up that were more functional invited me over, never asked me how I was, and never in the decades since have they ever contacted me to wish me well and to accept the hell they knew I was facing. Get out, get out, get out. People get out of their bad childhoods and their bad environments or their bad histories. They get out like people rowing frantically away from the Titanic. Go back? Go down? Are you crazy? The lights are fading down there 
in the icy darkness. The lights are flickering and fading. The lungs have bubbled their last breaths. The fish are gathering, beginning to feed on the marble-chilled human flesh. I am rowing frantically away from the backwash and the suction down in the whirlpool of death that is taking thousands. You want me to dive down? Are you crazy? All I can do is get away, but you can only escape for a short amount of time. The dead don't lie. What is the fundamental thing that we hear about in stories, that we see in stories all the time? The dead don't stay dead. The dead come back. The dead demand justice. Those we flee from to softer beds wrap us in their chilly tentacled embrace when we lie down to sleep in our dreams, in our nightmares, in our hauntings, in our uneasiness, in our anxiety. We are all one in a very fundamental way. Thinking you can escape bad childhoods is like thinking you can escape a gangrenous finger. Okay, maybe it's only your finger, but it ain't going to stay your finger only. The infection, the rot, will spread. And circling back to help. Another reason why people do it, don't do it, is they don't want the ire of the abusers. I understand that. I've certainly been targeted by that. But what's their choice? Just continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. In history, this repetitive, repulsive, regurgitating cycle. I won't, I won't do it if there's, if there's power within me to break that cycle. Let it be flexed forevermore. What happened with the king? 21st January, 1793. So, by the close of 1792, the extremist Jacobins demanded nothing less than the brutal beheading of Louis XVI. They, of course, hated his arbitrary power, and therefore they wished to destroy his arbitrary power with their own arbitrary power. And shockingly, this did not work to end aforementioned arbitrary power. In December of 1792, the sham trial of the former Louis XVI, now, as, now known as Citizen Louis Capet, occurred for the National Convention. Now, you all know Thomas Paine, he of common sense, the pamphleteer of the American Revolution. Thomas Paine was present, the American patriot, and this was exactly the synchronon, the platonic ideal of a show trial. Louis XVI faced trumped-up charges, accusations he and even his detractors knew were farcical. Ironically, he was labeled a traitor for his royal title, a title that only became a crime at that very instant. Ooh, look at that. We have new moral standards cast backwards through time to convict people after the fact. Retroactive law. The essence of tyranny. And there was a vote. Should the king live or will the king die? Robespierre cast his vote first, declaring, and I quote, The same conviction that drove me to advocate for the end of the death penalty compels me now to insist on its use against my nation's oppressor. <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean to laugh, because it's horrifying. I want the end of the death penalty, and because I want the end of the death penalty, I wish to apply the death penalty against Louis Capet. Louis Capet. So Robespierre ardently demanded the king's execution. He branded the trial as counter-revolutionary. Again, this is quite the whirlpool of nonsense. According to Robespierre, Louis Capet was a criminal toward humanity, and executing him was a mere measure of public safety. He said, the king must die because the country must live. 
Now, of course, you think that this is just parent and child, parent and child, parent and child. The king is the father, the citizens are the children. And if you have a father who's going to discipline you, yea, verily, unto murder and death, then at some point you will feel that either you die or your father die. Because none of this is empirical. None of this makes any sense. They could have banished the king into exile. They could have kept imprisoning him. But no, it's him or us. Either the father dies or the child dies. Well, if the father is beating you black and blue with a wild, cold-eyed, marble-faced impulse that reads murder all over the forehead, then, yes, I will kill my father so my father does not kill me. Either the murderous father must die or the child the father wishes to murder will die. Him or us. It's the end of the world as we know it if he continues to live. This is not about the king. It's about his own father. The vote determining the king's destiny was a harrowing process that spanned over 72 hours. It was the king's own cousin who bore the revolutionary name Philippe Egalité. Philip Equality. He actually tipped the balance with his decision to vote for the death of the king. Because, you know, family, family, fam family, 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 right? You got mothers murdering their children, cousins voting for the king's death. It almost isn't even worth saying that Philip Egalité was later executed as well. I mean, this feels almost inevitable at this point. In a final high note of corruption, it's important to recognize this entire procedure was tainted with voting fraud. Among these fraudulent votes was one from the notorious Angel of Death, Louis-Antoine Léon de Saint-Just. He wasn't even of age to vote. Ah, what does that matter? I'm sure they had some mail-in ballots too. By the way, just because his name is kind of fun to say, Louis-Antoine Léon de Saint-Just was a pivotal figure in the French Revolution, a key member and head of the French National Convention, and a leading voice within the Jacobin Club. He had a very strong bond with Maximilien Robespierre, and was positioned as one of Robespierre's most dependable allies during the Jacobin dominance period in the early French Republic, 1793 to 1794. In addition to his roles in legislation and the military, one more time, Louis-Antoine Léon de Saint-Just is most remembered for his association with the imminent, the tsunami of blood coming known as the Reign of Terror. He was often referred to as the Archangel of the Terror. On the eve of his execution, King Louis XVI, or, or citizen Louis Capet, imparted religious instructions to his children and urged them to absolve those who sought his life. Is this true? Is this myth? We don't have video, of course, but this is the story. Jacques Roux, a defector from the church who joined the extreme rabid faction known as the Enrages, enraged, coldly approached the king. Dismissing the king's request to deliver his will, Jacques Roux sharply retorted, I have not come here to do your errands. I am here to take you to the scaffold. I'm sure with a... <laughs> he made his way up to the platform of the guillotine. Louis XVI spoke at the end of his life. He said, I die innocent of all the crimes imputed to me. I pardon the authors of my death and pray God that the blood you are about to shed will never fall upon France. The merciless crowd silenced him with their contemptuous shouts. After the blade's gruesome fall, the king's head was crudely flaunted 
amidst lewd gestures. I'm positive that the man grabbed it and simulated homosexual fellatio, all of this sort of stuff. The frenzied crowd reveled in the horror, eagerly soaking handkerchiefs in royal blood. The remains of the monarch were carelessly discarded. And a year afterwards, the first anniversary of this savage act, the revolutionaries were in jubilant spirits, grotesquely commemorating with a mock execution of a Louis XVI effigy. And of course they feel relief. Vengeance has occurred. And they feel relief because the devils of their nature have won. And they no longer have, in that moment, a tension between good and evil. Evil has won, and they feel this relief as justice that they have achieved vengeance. Now, Louis XVI sent countless Frenchmen to their deaths, waged useless wars against England and others, ran up the debt. And, of course, you're going to hear all of this noble stuff that, oh, these savages, because we just want these light and dark venues. But from the point of view of the revolutionaries, there is no mass murderer like the king. Hundreds of thousands of men had perished under his reign of starvation, of war, of petty criminality of the death penalty for speaking out against the king. He was a tyrant. How many people across America or the West shed a tear when Saddam Hussein was killed? People want to say that there were these noble kings and there were these horrible, messy mobs. How much sympathy did the king show to the hundreds of thousands of people whose deaths he caused over the length of his reign. He wanted to paint the world, the colors of France, with the blood of his citizens. And by God, he had a deep bucket and a wide brush. And he went to his death, we can say, if we accept the face value of these statements, he went to his death with some nobility. All right? But he went to his death, perhaps, with a deep and powerful sense of relief of the hell his life not only had become, but frankly had always been. Those who send tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to their death, how much should we mourn when the blades they have carelessly cast among the soft flesh of their citizenry return, like a boomerang, to their own flesh? Who's innocent? Who's guilty? Every blow from every parent created the reign of terror. The reign of terror was the French childhood weaponized through the agency of the state. Now, there are historical disagreements on the beginning and the end of the reign of terror. I'm going to go from the killing of the king through to the fall of Robespierre. The reign of terror, I'm sure you have heard of it, you know something about it. It's a period of the revolution, it's almost an inevitable part of the revolution, where there was fear, suspicion, backstabbing, where revolutionaries turned on each other as the mob they unleashed inevitably returned to come for them. It was also the reign of peak midwit idiocy as the inmates were running the asylum at this point. I mean, <laughs> I mentioned this before, one absurd outcome of these crazy times was the creation of the revolutionary calendar. Not quite as much fun as the one with little chocolates behind the windows that I used to open for Christmas. The revolutionary calendar was created by the Committee of Public Instruction, and, of course, it was government, bureaucracy, and so on. The calendar kicked off with year one, which equated to the prior year, 
1792. And the calendar was organized around the concepts of reason and nature. It had 12 30-day months further broken down into three 10-day weeks. By the way, did you know that the Babylonians had a 60-base rather than a 10-base counting system, which is why we have 360 degrees, why we have 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, just by the by. To account for the year's surplus days, bizarre complementary days were added. Virtue Day, Genius Day, Labor Day, Reason Day, Rewards Day, and Revolution Day during leap years. I mean, they, they weren't content with just the calendar. Even clocks underwent senseless transformations. Standard clock was reconfigured into decimal time. A minute was 86.4 seconds, an hour equal to 144 normal minutes. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of freedom enthusiasts, particularly in America, have a pretty significant hostility towards the metric system. It's decimal communism. Also, not, I think, as often spoken of as it should be, is this unbelievably brutal war in Vendeux. 1793 to 1796. So let's talk about this because this shows you the mechanics of the revolution. Now, remember, how was childhood disagreements or what would be called rebellions? Just don't listen. How were childhood disagreements dealt with by parents in France in the 18th century with escalation of violence until the child complied? Remember, we talked to about, or we heard the woman talking about beating her baby black and blue at the age of four months until the baby complied. And even then the baby didn't comply, at least according to her recording of it. How do you deal with rebellion with people who disagree with you? This is all the language that is learned in childhood. To escalate violence. To escalate violence until compliance or death. Compliance or death. So, let's talk about Vendue. In the secluded western coast of France, lies the Vendée region. And it's very conservative, deeply rooted in Catholicism, and reflects a lot of the values of the Middle Ages, for better and for worse, a lot of worse, but some better. The population is primarily farmers and tradesmen, and was very deeply interconnected with the clergy and the local nobility. Now, initially, when they heard about the French Revolution, what was promised? Well, we're going to reduce your taxes and reduce your conscription. There's going to be infrastructure improvements and the like. Yeah, that sounds... That sounds pretty good, but their allegiance shifted dramatically when the revolution began to target the church and demanded oaths of loyalty to the state from the clergy. Of course, Catholics followed the Pope, and the Pope condemned the revolution. And so the majority of Vendeur's religious leaders refused to bow to the new order, to the revolution, and they stirred public dissent. The situation escalated when forced conscription began in 1793, resulting in the townsfolk of Doulon proclaiming their rejection. They said, they have killed our king, chased away our priests. No, they shall not have them, the young men. As tensions grew, the Vendeur became a hotbed of rebellion. By March 1793, peasants armed with basic tools revolted against the recruiters and the Republic forces under Jacques Catalinou's leadership, colloquially known as the Saint of Anjou, they mobilized as the Whites. By May's end, they had reclaimed most of Vendue. 
The Whites allied with the remnants of the king's army to establish their rule in Cholet, forming the Catholic Royal Army. Drawing inspiration from the American Revolution, they used a blend of guerrilla warfare and open field tactics. Their numbers peaked at around 50,000. Intent on further advancing their cause, they aimed to capture Nantes, a strategic port city, to help facilitate a British invasion, a liberation from the growing reign of terror. However, after a significant defeat and the loss of their leader, Catalineau, the Republic retaliated fiercely. How dare you defy me? Parenting, statism, tyranny. <laughs> That's just, I guess, the whole, whole point of this. Parenting, statism, tyranny. So what happened? Well, the Republic brought in 75,000 troops and crushed the rebellion by December of 1793. Is it enough to defeat your enemies? No. The purpose of beating children was to make sure they never rebelled again. Ever. There is no grace in victory. There is only and forever escalation. Intent on obliterating any spirit of resistance in Vendue, General Louis-Marie Thoreau led the infernal columns these are 12 groups tasked with raising the Vendeurs to the ground. They ravaged villages, massacred the populace, and led a campaign of pure terror. According to worldhistory.org, their actions claimed the lives of about 50,000 Vendeurs. And therefore, the entire war's toll was about 170,000 souls. It's almost, it's about one-fifth of Vendée's total pre-war population. Some historians have classified these events as the first modern genocide fueled by vehement anti-Catholic sentiment among the revolutionaries. The revolutionaries were raised in a religious scenario that said disobedient children would go to hell. Disobedience would create hell. So then when the Catholics disobeyed them and the priests disobeyed them, and the Christians disobeyed them, they brought hell back. Some of the worst blow blowback occurs through verbal abuse. And people often overlook this, but in the reign of terror, it's much more interesting to look at the guillotines and all of that, but the infernal column genocide, well, this is what you get when you beat your children half to death, right? So you can't have a reign of terror from the state without the pretext, pretext of legality, right? You have to have the rituals. You have to have the rituals. Parents don't say to their children, I'm in a bad mood and I'm going to feel better by beating you. I'm a sadist, so I'm going to feel happy by beating you. No, no, no. You understand, there have to be these rituals. There has to be a rule. There has to be a breaking of the rule. There has to be punishment in order to improve the child. There's all these rituals so that Parents can look in the mirror and say, I am an agent of virtue. I am driving the badness out of these children, and I am bringing them to the light of higher morality. I'm not a sadistic a-hole. No, 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 no. I'm a bringer of light and truth and reason and virtue to the poor benighted children who are tempted by Satan himself and possessed perhaps by a devil. There has to be these rituals. I mean, otherwise, like without the rituals, you're obviously evil. You're obvious. The rituals are there to ward away the obviousness of your evils. 
So, yeah, you have to set up these revolutionary tribunals. And this really first came to fruition in the French Revolution. French Revolution was, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I can't think of an exception, doesn't mean there isn't one, I just can't think of one right now, which is scarcely <laughs> encyclopedic knowledge. It's the first secular revolution, this first secular rebellion, not a competing god, not a competing state, but the first truly secular rebellion. And even they need their rituals to hide their evil from themselves. So Maximilian, always, always back with the Max, Max death. Maximilian Robespierre suggested the creation of a new tribunal to provide a structured legal framework for handling allegations of political offenses and treachery as an alternative to spontaneous executions by regional groups. Yes, you wouldn't want just to have a mob. You've got to make it formal. You've got to make it formalized. Otherwise, it, it's bad, right? Magic. Magic words. Magic desks. Magic wigs. Magic uniforms. Transform it from a mob to a civilized execution of justice. Don't you know? So... It was set up to adjudicate claims of purported anti-revolutionary acts from throughout France, and it had a panel of 12 jurors. The convention nominated five judges, a chief prosecutor, and two assistant prosecutors for the fighter court. Sorry, for the court. No one could challenge its decisions, and the court could enforce capital punishment. Right? Rebellion. Counter-revolutionary. Questioning. The vanity of thinking that you can run the lives of tens of millions of souls creates a very unstable personality structure that cannot take any criticism. We, of course, see this, right? The secularists have a deep inability to take criticism because all of their moralizing rests on mere opinion. Absent universally preferable behavior, the rational proof of secular ethics that I've worked on forever, you see, all of their morals rest on airy adjectives, rest on imagination, rest on emotion, rest on sophistry. At least the Christians can say, this is the word of God. What do the revolutionaries say? Their morality rests on nothing, and therefore it's intensely sensitive to criticism. If you've ever poked around in the conscience of someone who deep down knows that they're wrong, you see a lot of violence and aggression coming out of that kind of person. They can't defend themselves, and therefore they have to escalate and use violence also the essence of bad parenting, of course, right? So they can't handle criticism. And anyone who doesn't invite criticism is wrong by default. They're not even accidentally right. They're wrong by default. Because we can't be right without criticism. Truth is a social mechanic. Because, you know, it's easy for us to have confirmation bias and ex post facto reasoning and surround ourselves with those who agree with us and only pursue sources that confirm our impressions. So, yeah, everybody who doesn't invite, not just accept, invite criticism is automatically wrong right? and has to kill, right? And again, killing those who criticize you is straight up parenting at this time and sadly for a long time after. So spurred on by Danton and Robespierre, a group assembled outside the convention on the night of March the 9th, 1792, vocally demanding the ousting of any deputies they deemed disloyal for not supporting the king's execution. If you had any doubts, doubts must be killed. Doubts must be killed. We have our text. It can't be reasoned with. All who doubt or question the text, the assumption, the fact, the reality, 
are traitors and evil and must be killed again. This is the complete, not just absence of, but rejection and repudiation of philosophy, reason, science, evidence, facts, reality, truth, logic, debate, discourse. All who are uncertain either submit or draw their swords. And these weren't the kind of people to submit. Following an extended discussion until midnight, the night of March 9th, Danton convinced most members to support the proposal by highlighting the potential for more unchecked slaughters like those witnessed the prior September. He contended that if the convention declined to establish the tribunal, the public would be forced to administer their own form of justice. Let us be terrible so that the people will not have to be. Oh, look at that. They're just they're willing to take these sins on themselves so that people don't end up sinning in this Christ-like fashion. They will take on all of the immorality. We shall perform the executions. Otherwise, the unchecked population will perform the executions. And that would just be chaos and madness. Murder there must be. Let it be ours. We will take the monopoly on murder. At this time, Jean-Paul Marat, you've probably heard of him, died in the bath. He was an architect of the revolution and a journalist. At this time, Jean-Paul Marat met his end. As he soaked in a bath, he gave an audience to a young woman that he did not know sympathized with the Girondins, his enemies. She stabbed him with a five-inch kitchen knife and was herself guillotined shortly after. At her execution, she said, I killed one man to save one hundred thousand. Well, and this was their reasoning with the king. The king must die so that the country may live. Sacrifice yourself for the group is an invitation to wholesale slaughter. So he died based upon the words and morals that he promulgated for everyone else. Tragically inevitable. Or everything without reason escalates. Everything without reason escalates. Marat's assassination led to his virtual sainthood by the civic religious cults. His almost prophetic significance was solidified by the elegy, and I quote, Like Jesus, Marat loved ardently the people, and only them. Like Jesus, Marat hated kings, nobles, priests, rogues, and, like Jesus, he never stopped fighting against these plagues of the people. The eulogy was given by the vile Marquis de Sade, who, during the French Revolution, was an elected delegate to the National Convention. And, I mean, we really... I don't know if I have the stomach to go much in depth about the Marquis de Sade. Last we heard of him was languishing in prison. But, yeah. During his lifetime, which was... 1740 to 1814, he outlived the revolution and almost made it to the end of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. During his lifetime, Saad, Marquis de Saad, was found guilty of uh, sodomy, uh, rape, uh, torturing the 36-year-old beggar woman Rose Keller, imprisoning six children in his chateau at Lacoste, and he also found time to poison five prostitutes with the aphrodisiac Spanish fly. He spent 32 years in prisons as well as insane asylums. And this was partly due to the intervention of his family members who wanted to keep him locked up to avoid general disgrace. And he was freed under the French Revolution. Fellow traveler, we could use a sadist like you. And he participated in some of the key political events of the entire revolutionary era. And then his works were seized, destroyed and banned under Napoleon Bonaparte. His work was censored throughout the 19th century, most of the 20th, but in 2017, 
the French government declared his 120 days of Sodom, which was written in 1785, he wrote it in the Bastille on a 12-meter scroll, to be a national treasure. It's a national treasure. What can I tell you? I mean, his taste for sodomy, pedophilia, flagellation, he had fictional accounts, perhaps fictional, of wild orgies, sexual cruelty, murder in obsessive and excessive detail. And everyone's like, oh, he's crazy. Although there was a scientific examination of his skull by a fellow named Dr. Ramon after his death, no physical or mental abnormalities. Just horrendous. And, of course, the secular revolutionaries loved him as an agency of mammalian lusts, and the French government also venerated him as of 2017. I'm banned, you see, but the Marquis de Sade is a national treasure. Why bother saving that which is eating itself? Why? Why bother? So, yeah, the Marquis de Sade was praising Marat and Jesus and all of that. Ugh. Also, a revolutionary watch committee was also established in every neighborhood. In the summer of 1793, top political figures in France had felt a heightened urgency due to the pervasive civil conflict and opposition to the revolution. One politician passionately declared at the convention on September the 5th, 1793, Let's make terror the order of the day! Let's make terror the order of the day. Terrorizing people brings order. Terrorizing people brings virtue. Terrorizing people is the only way to keep the devils at bay. This is parenthood. I'm sorry to keep hitting the same drumbeat, but it's really, really important to understand. We're not describing a political movement. We're, des- we're describing a well-armed parental paradigm. You raise children with the blows, lashes, beatings, verbal abuse, and say this staggering level of violence is your only chance for virtue than when they gain political power and they lust for political power. Well, we all can see what happens, right? The Committee of Public Safety, private danger. You know, if you want to know what goes on with uh, public, publicly named departments or institutions, it's pretty simple. Just, you know, what's the exact opposite of what their words are? It's not a committee, it's an imposition, dictatorial imposition. It's not public, it's private vengeance, and it's not safety, it's infinite danger. 6 April 1793, the Committee of Public Safety, which was the National Convention's de facto government during the Reign of Terror, was entrusted with safeguarding the budding republic from external and internal adversaries. Waging war with neighboring nations heightened the committee's influence. War is the health of the state, as we all know. Waging war gave the committee unprecedented control over military, judicial, legislative, and executive matters. Robespierre's induction to the committee on July 27, 1793, him with the clout to champion the establishment of a war council and the creation of a state religion and the worship of the supreme being, whom we mentioned before. The newfound zeal for change, though, soon waned. The French Constitution of 1793, ratified on August the 4th, declared every citizen a soldier, urging that they take up arms and train. But the Constitution was quickly rendered void by the Convention's overwhelming power. And the stuff that's on paper doesn't matter if it doesn't match the minds of the citizens. As one of the recent Supreme Court justices repeatedly said, the Constitution of the Soviet Union under communism was a model of citizens' rights, but nobody believed in it. It was simply a piece of paper. If it doesn't reflect the mind and will of the people, it's really worse than useless. 
By October the 3rd, 1793, Robespierre declared that there was a schism in the convention. Those who championed the masses and those who plotted counter-revolutionary betrayals and treachery, although he appreciated the worth of 73 Girondins, deeming them beneficial, more than 20 were brought to trial. Even Danton, now a voice for relative moderation, didn't escape Robespierre's scrutiny. I remember, I'm sure you've seen this too, well, maybe it's not as popular anymore, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is, Mickey Mouse is a sorcerer's apprentice, of course, and starts doing spells and everything gets wildly out of control. He's lazy and he wants the brooms to mop themselves, but they end up sloshing water everywhere, creating a flood, and it just escalates and escalates until the sorcerer comes back and puts everything back and tames everyone and everything and so on, right? The slippery slope to violence is a very real phenomenon. The slippery slope is really proven out to the modern world, and one of the great gifts, one of the most horrifying gifts the modern world is going to give to the future world is that anybody who says, oh, that argument's just a slippery slope, and people will say, no, no, 20th, 21st century, slippery slope is not a counter-argument. Slippery slope is the norm. Slippery slope is the norm. That's the most likely outcome. We are gifting that with trembling bloody hands to the future. And this slippery slope, yeah, let's, uh, let's use violence. Let's use violence to get our way. We're not going to teach parents to reason with their children. We're going to kill and murder our way to the top. But, but don't worry, once we kill and murder our way to the top, all that killing and murdering is just going to end. It's like, nope, 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 nope. You've just uncorked the genie. You can't put it back in. And it will ride roughshod in its murderous path, its bloody footprint path, all through your society until it is done. And when it is done, could be decades, could be centuries. The genie of violence only expires when there's nothing left in the world but blood, and it drowns in its own effluent. You uncork that genie, you unleash that genie, and it will murder until it suffocates under millions of bodies. I don't know why people want to do this, but they do. All right, let's do the execution of Marie Antoinette. On October the 14th, 1793, Marie Antoinette was thrust before a jury of 11 men who were completely handpicked in an insulting way and in a very conscious way from society's dregs, from the very bottom of society. Feeding the crowd's bloodlust, Marie Antoinette was accused of masterminding plots and conspiracies and indulging in midnight orgies. She was malevolently labeled as the scourge and the bloodsucker of the French. Ah, you see, verbal abuse comes before violence. You are a bad child, I will discipline you. Verbal abuse comes before violence, and those who don't understand that are always shocked at the escalation. Abuse comes before violence in parenting, and here they have to whip themselves into a self-righteous and judgmental frenzy to hide from themselves their own evil. Now, the reports are, and who knows how objective they are, that Marie Antoinette did display remarkable grace under the most unholy pressure. She was attacked with these outrageous claims, and she responded to them. She refuted them with poise, calmness, and she eloquently unmasked the baselessness of the allegations heaped upon her. She fiercely, yet with dignity, retorted, My plan is not denial. It is the truth I have said, and I persist in that. At one testament to the absurdity of the accusations was the claim 
by Hébert, that she, Marie Antoinette, owned a religious book with a counter-revolutionary depiction of Jesus, pleading hard of Jesus, have pity on us. As Le Bon noted, the mob mentality made it so that, and I quote, a crowd accepts as real the images evoked in its mind, though they most often have only a very distant relation with the observed fact. Right. One of the main purposes of sophistry is to excavate reality from the mind and replace it with heated language of moral justification. We've seen this play out countless times in our lives, of course. The entire sham trial against Antoinette was, of course, a spectacle of predetermined injustice. After enduring two days of this kangaroo court, the inevitable outcome was pronounced. Marie Antoinette was labeled a traitor and doomed to death. When asked if she had any final words, the persecuted queen responded with a poignant silence, just shaking her head. Stripped of her mourning attire, she was commanded to don a plain white smock, attempting to suppress any ounce of sympathy from onlookers. She was bleeding. She was in need. She was actually quite ill by this point, of course, having been weakened by a long time in prison with people passing by. And she saw, of course, the mutilated body of her best friend paraded by people condemning them as lesbian lovers. She wasn't even given a moment of privacy to change. She was watched by the unsympathetic gendarme. The state showed its full might and power, mobilized its entire cavalry, and fortified the streets of Paris with artillery and bayonet-wielding soldiers, all to contain and guide a single, solitary, young, frail, diseased widow. Bound and guarded, Marie Antoinette was paraded through the city on a crude criminal cart, subjected to prolonged jeering and ridicule from the bloodthirsty mob. Even in this truly horrifying circumstance, whatever you think of her, and you know, she was born into this society, she was born into wealth, she couldn't exactly just walk away from it, she couldn't just make her own choices or her own decisions in life. Whatever you want to think of her, she was a relatively kind person, given the cruelty of some of the queens of the age. She was certainly among the best, and she did have sympathy for the poor, and she did dine with the poor children, and she did give charitably. Whatever you think of her political circumstances, she, as a young woman, was one of the best monarchs, I think, that uh, Europe has ever seen, in terms of what she did with the power that she inherited, or married into in this case. But she did remain calm. She prayed silently, and everyone who saw it, who wrote about it, said that her face remained calm. She showed no fear or resistance. Ascending the scaffold, Marie Antoinette's final words came after she accidentally stepped on the executioner's foot. Monsieur, I beg your pardon. And dignified end was met with gleeful cheers and jeers from the crowd. And they chanted, Vive la République, as her severed head was held aloft. <laughs> 